Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We started Someone to Tell It To in 2012, and all along, our philosophy has been to listen. Because our mission is to cultivate meaningful connections through compassionate listening and to train others to do the same, we thought it might be best to highlight both aspects, listening and training in a podcast. Both listening and training continue to catalyze this global listening movement where someone's voice is being heard. Someone is being reminded that they matter and someone doesn't need to feel alone in whatever they are facing. We'll be posting two episodes each month to start. One will highlight training because we can all benefit from learning how to become better listeners. The second will highlight how listening has played a vital role in an individual's journey. We are so excited to share these rich conversations with you. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to call the people we listen to. You know, are they clients, friends, storytellers? Nothing quite fit. So we wanted a name that represented the type of relationship we try to build and the way we value those we listen to. But the fact is we struggle. We struggle to find a single word that could accomplish what we realized, what we needed. So in the end, we were surprised to find the answer that was staring right at us. Someone. Someone with a story to share. Someone who needs a friend. Someone who is grieving, angry, lonely, afraid, or has questions about matters of faith. Someone who simply needs someone to listen. We always hope to establish a mutual relationship between friends who are sharing life's journey together. So that means that you are someone. You have a story worth sharing. You have inherent worth. You deserve to be seen, heard, and known. It also means that we are someone. We have stories of our own. We value showing up and listening and compassion. We want everyone to know the joy of engaging in meaningful relationships. You'll see us using this refreshed terminology from now on. And when you see it or hear it, we hope it makes you smile. You are someone. Junlei Lee is the Saul Zanz Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. His research and practice focuses on understanding and supporting the work of helpers, those who serve children and families on the front lines of education and social services. He developed the simple interactions approach to help identify what ordinary people do extraordinarily well with children in everyday moments and made that the basis for promoting positive system change. Junlei's work is significantly influenced, inspired by the pioneering work of Fred Rogers, creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. June Lay previously served as the co-director and Rita M. McGinley Professor for Early Learning and Children's Media at the Fred Rogers Center at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so we're just so excited to get into this interview today. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, welcome. We are always 
so glad to have new listeners who join us on the Someone to Tell To podcast. For those of you who have been actively listening, uh, welcome back. And if you remember in our very first episode, one that we were also very excited about was with a dear friend of ours named Tim Madigan, who talked about his friendship with the late Fred Rogers. And for those of you who actively follow someone to tell it to his work and our mission, you know that Fred Rogers was truly a hero of ours. And so we wanted to just briefly give you an overview of how we were first introduced to Jun Lei Lee through the incredible documentary last year, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about the life and legacy of Mr. Fred Rogers. We've seen it, Michael and I have seen it together three times now, and the very first time we saw it, we said to one another in the middle of the movie theater, we need to reach out to this man, Jun Lee Lei. Uh, he's someone we want to know. We simply found his demeanor to be very appealing, gent gentle, thoughtful, and kind. So much like Mr. Fred Rogers. What a privilege it is to have connected with him and to have him as our podcast guest today. So, June Lay, welcome to today's podcast. Tom, Michael, it's a pleasure to be here, especially after um, uh, reading um, the the book that someone to tell it to that you shared with me. I feel like I know a little bit about um, of both of you uh, personally <laughs> prior to uh, uh, having this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank well, you thanks, for thanks for reading the book. Yeah, we're always thrilled when we hear that somebody does. So thank you. So the first question for you, you have an obvious affection for the positive development of children. And of course, we hope that most people do. But what has inspired you to follow this affection professionally? Um, I think for me, um, it actually has evolved over time. Um, my initial interest in children uh, was very much on their learning. Um, I imagine that has um, something to do with the fact that both my parents were teachers. And I think I can trace teachers in my family all the way to great-grandparents. Um, and so initially it was just kind of following um, in my family's footsteps. Um, but uh, I would say that within the last 10 years or so, um, what has uh, inspired me are not just children themselves, but are the people that I have met um, who work with children, either as teachers or caregivers or social workers, or just sometimes just a helper. Um, and you mentioned earlier that most of our work uh, uh, focus on helpers who um, do extraordinary things in everyday um, uh, life. And they are the ones, I think, uh, that have inspired me um, uh, the most uh, over the last 10 years. So we're really excited to ask you this question today because it seems to us that you're at the pinnacle now at Harvard University studying and researching early childhood education. Could you tell us a little bit about your experiences at Harvard? So honestly, I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> what kind of experience I'm having at Harvard <laughs> and, um, and what kind of experience I, I, I hope to have. Um, you think I'm glad you mentioned uh, Henry Nouwen. So um, I, my first connection to Henry Nouwen was actually through my undergrad at Notre Dame. So Hun Henry, I think, taught in Notre Dame 
Um, by the time I was a, a student, he was already gone, but I ended up taking a class um, in my junior year in um, social service. Uh, it was a class that Henry had developed uh, with uh, Father Don McNeil um, there. And uh, at the time, I had no idea who Henry Nowen was, but I remember that was my first introduction um, to connecting faith and service um, together. And um, so one of the things I think that makes me uh, ambivalent about uh, being at an institution like Harvard was something that Henry said um, when he left Harvard um, to go become the pastor for adults with uh, severe um, disabilities in L'Arche, uh, I, I believe it was in Toronto. Um, I think Henry was talking about the disconnect between being at the pinnacle of the academic world and wanting to stay rooted in a faith that is connected to everyday experiences. Um, I think m my own feeling so far is comparable. I mean, Harvard is uh, both externally and internally at the pinnacle of the academic world, not just Harvard all by itself, but there are institutions like Harvard. Um, it's a wonderful place to be for learning. Um, there are so many experts around um, to learn about just about anything. The students are fantastic and ambitious. Um, at the same time, I think a number of colleagues um, who are in the same field remind me that uh, don't get too used to being at an institution like that and then be disconnected uh, from the helpers. Um, by and large, um, the kind of helpers we work with, the kind of helpers we go in the field to observe, um, their organizations and institutions are very, very far from the pinnacle. Um, so I'm, I think, excited about um, being at Harvard to have the opportunity to learn to teach as well as potentially uh, have a, a, a larger uh, platform upon which to share our stories and messages. Uh, at the same time, I'm watchful and wary uh, of the kind of um, I think concerns that even Henry Nowen had um, when he was teaching here at Harvard. Absolutely, we we actually resonate very strongly with that because you know we struggle too, uh, you know, it trying trying to be the, the the kind of people who are really in the trenches, so to speak, uh, with with listening and with trying to help people through their their brokenness and their loneliness and their pain and there there are many who can study it and come at it from an academic approach but uh, are not connected as you say you know with with often with the real real people <laughs> in real situations and that's so important to us to be able to bridge both worlds and so we uh, we understand that that tension and that that Nowen certainly felt and that you're feeling as well and uh, we appreciate you talking about that and sharing that we've the last two years spoken for this community called the international listening association and uh, who knew there was such a thing right but we uh, we we got connected with this community two years ago and they actually call us kind of a breath of fresh air when we come and speak and present 
to their uh, their group uh maybe it's maybe 18 countries represented from around the world but primarily it's academics who are studying listening who are teaching listening and so uh they, they enjoy having us around to to remind some of the ac- academics what what true listening look can look like in everyday life and uh so they call us a breath of fresh air so i thought you'd appreciate that yeah and, and and we also appreciate your you know again the continued commentary on on now and we've read so many of his books the first book of his that we read together was compassion and it is just served as a uh, you know a cornerstone as a foundational cornerstone for the work that we do and um, I was fortunate enough as a young pastor to have uh, spent a day uh, in an auditorium with Nowen. Uh, before he died, and uh, the, I, I look back at that uh, and now as a as a day that I wish I would have, um, you know, uh, I wish I could recapture uh, for you know, the wisdom that he shared and the heart that he uh, that was very evident from him. So June 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 Lay, let's transition a little bit back to your story of working for the Fred Rogers Center, another hero of ours. And what led you there and and how have you been able to merge some of the practical experiences that you had there with the academic community at Harvard? Um, I went to the Fred uh, Rogers Center because I was um, I went to Pittsburgh uh, to study child development and I lived in Pittsburgh for over 20 years. And while I was at Pittsburgh, I couldn't help but being influenced by Fred's work. Um, that was the original uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And um, so for the last, I think I started to really follow and try to study what I can of Fred's work when I was a graduate student. Um, and then as I started to work in Pittsburgh, gradually I started to find different connections to um, Fred's nonprofit, which at the time was called Family Communications, and that was the nonprofit that produced Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, Later on, as the nonprofit focused more on television production for PBS, um, that was a a number of years after Fred had died, Um, there was separately uh, the establishment of the Fred Rogers Center, which was meant to understand and carry on Fred's legacy beyond the television world. Um, So um, a number of uh, years ago when um, they were looking for a faculty uh, in child development, uh, I went over there and I went on to be a co-director for the center. Um, Most of the work we did there, I think, uh, uh, are on two parts. One is to preserve and uh, understand Fred's legacy, not just what he did on television, but what did he think, what did he believe, why did he do what he did on television and off the television. Um, the other part was to tie these things to very practical, everyday um, uh, a life. Uh, for us, it was particularly in the lives of those who help children, uh, whether they're parents and teachers and caregivers and so on. Um, so that's Kind of uh, in a nutshell, kind of what what we were trying to do, 
um, at the Fred uh, Rogers Center. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So you started this simple interactions approach uh, where you developed some of the things you've identified that people do extraordinarily well with children in everyday moments that lead to positive system change. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I think in the very beginning, uh, simple interactions was rooted in this idea that um, no matter what lofty theories we may have about children's development, in the end, what really matters is what you actually do with a child in any particular moment. Um, you know, when you are face-to-face with your own children or whether you're taking care of uh, young children or working with adolescents or whether um, you work with children with severe disabilities. Um, it's what you do from moment to moment um, that ultimately matters, and we call that the interaction, the human interaction in the moment. Um, so very early on, the idea was simply to um, help people to make that moment better. Um, it was just a very kind of, I would say, a very simple, almost a naive idea that, that if we can, you know, make one moment better, then that moment can become two and three and it goes so on and so forth. Um, I believe the focus on moment happened because uh, very early on, uh, more than a decade ago, uh, we chose to work in the orphanage environment. And in the orphanage environment, um, there are uh, there are not enough resources, and I don't just mean material ones. I mean even a resource like time, right? So you know, when I think of the work uh, you do, Michael and Tom, and, and I think of the time that you take to listen and to someone's story. I remember in your book you talked about this one particular story where uh, the two of you drove across the country with a friend and, and then, you know, spent more than 24 hours in the car listening to your friend. So in the context of the orphanage, time itself is uh, a scarce resource. Um, you have very few caregivers who's taking care of a large number of children, many of whom have moderate to severe disabilities. So when they don't have time like that, what they end up having are moments, moments as short as uh, a few seconds or a few minutes at a time. Um, I'll take very concrete examples. Uh, in the orphanages, a diaper change for an infant takes under 60 seconds, and a meal feeding a child takes three to four minutes and no more. So um, early on, we were just trying to understand how do you make those few seconds or few minutes count uh, in the children's development. Uh, initially, I think we had the typical kind of academic idea, right, which is that we know the theories, we know the principles, and if we just go in there and teach these caregivers what they should do, um, they'll be able to do it. And obviously, uh, at least in our work, that doesn't work, <laughs> um, in, part in part because we have so little appreciation of the challenges that 
these caregivers face um, institutionally as well as practically. But then what we discover as we spend more time in settings like that is um, there are caregivers who, despite all the obstacles, manage to make the most out of those few seconds and few minutes. And so we thought, you know what, instead of trying to teach these caregivers as if they didn't know, what if we captured, uh, in this case on film, um, what the few caregivers were doing? And what if we um, shared those few seconds and minutes with not only caregivers, but their administrators and so on to show that what is possible, what is already possible within that setting. So it's just that basic philosophy that started our work, but then over time it grew to early childhood settings here in the United States and K through 12 schooling and, and youth development outside school or hospitals and so on. Um, it grew from there, but that's that's the origin of the work. Yeah, we, we love that you've tried to continue Fred's legacy, Mr. Rogers' legacy. Uh, he would often say that deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. We actually had to read that a couple times today just because to let it sink in a little bit. Could you ex explain what you mean by that? Yeah, Fred often said something like that. He would sometimes use different words. Instead of shallow, he'll say uh, fancy, right? But I think uh, Fred really believed that there's something deep, uh, both within our work and within our individual. Um, so uh, it links to uh, something else I think he loved as a child. Um, you might have read that Fred's favorite book as a child was The Little Prince. And, um, and the theme of the book Little Prince was uh, what is essential is invisible to the eye. It is only with the heart that one sees rightly. And so he fundamentally believed that, that there was something essential about each of us and that it's not always apparent to the eye, to other people's eyes or to our own eyes, what, what the essential is. Um, and, and then he believes that meaningful work uh, comes out of that essential. Um, I connected that to what Henry Nouwen wrote in the last 10 years of his work in L'Arche with uh, people with profound disabilities. Um, you, might, you might remember a book called Adam, I think. He was referring to this adult that he was caring for who have profound disabilities, who does not speak, who barely moves. So what is visible to the eye is a person with profound disabilities that doesn't move. But Henry was writing about how Adam was teaching him what is essential uh, about being a person. And, and, and so anyhow, um, deep and simple to me meant uh, that you always try to look for what is essential about a person and, uh, and about the work that we do with people, um, whether they're children or whether they are grown-ups. This is Michael. Um, in our second book in particular, uh, I've written about this. I, I have a son who has profound disabilities intellectually. 
and he uh, as a 30 he's 31 years of age but um, you know maybe mentally he and intellectually he's uh, about at an 18 month old level he doesn't speak he, he needs 24-hour attention uh, he needs help with everything that he does and um, to the world he would look like he's not very essential there's not much he can offer you know in 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 many societal or worldly ways but the thing that i have learned is one of the most essential things in life and it was from him what it means to love unconditionally because uh, of the love that i feel for him even though he can't speak he can't love me back in the way that i you know that that most of us or almost all of us you know can love one another but he's taught me what it means to love someone, you know, unconditionally, and no matter who he is, no matter what he cannot do, um, and it's uh, it, it is so profound, and it's and it, it's been an essential learning in my life, and so I, I really appreciate this, you know, what you're saying, and what both both Fred Rogers and Henri Nouwen have said and wrote too, because and that's why I think we we both Tom and I connect so strongly with them. And uh, with the things that you're saying as well, because of those, we, we believe that uh, those matters of the heart, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's nothing more important. Yeah. And actually, I had referenced our very first podcast interview with our good friend, Tim Madigan. And I don't believe we shared this on a previous episode, but one of our favorite things about Tim is we'll periodically connect over the phone. Now he lives in Texas and we live obviously in Pennsylvania. But uh, every time we get on the phone with Tim, immediately we just connect as if we've been in the same room for, for, for days, if not weeks together. And we just pick up the conversation like we just had had it. Um, you know, as best friends. And one of the things that we always appreciate about Tim, and he actually learned this from Fred, was that Fred would always make you feel, whoever he was speaking to at that time, feel as if they were the most important person in his or her life. And when we talk with Tim on the phone, he will always ask us, I don't want to always hear just about the good things that are happening in your lives. Tell me about the, the, the harder things, the messy things. And we often find in our work that it's in sharing the invisibles to the eye that true relationships and true connections occur because that's when you're forming bonds of, of true intimacy and depth and in your human connections and so yeah we do we just resonate so strongly with that message so thanks for reminding us all of that today and 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 michael i'm glad you shared um about that because when i was reading your book i i you know as i was reading your story uh, with with your son i was thinking of now uh uh writing and and i wondered you know the kind of connections that you you would have drawn between um, what Nowen wrote and 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 your own uh, lived experience. Well, thank you. The connection is very deep and very profound. And uh, the story of Adam um, that that Nowen that Nowen conveys is um, yeah, it's it's one that resonates so so very much with me. So thank you. Another what? message that Fred would often talk about 
And it's one that we've shared actually in a couple sermons that we've delivered and in some of the talks that we've given about our work at Someone to Tell It To is this Lifetime Achievement Award speech that you can find on YouTube for those of you who are listening. It's just a, like a three-minute clip of Fred receiving this Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys. And he gets up on stage in front of all of these famous actors and actresses and famous people. And he, in typical Fred Rogers fashion, gets up on stage and looks out over the crowd and says, and this is live on TV, says, I'm going to encourage all of you. I'm going to take 10 seconds. I'm going to time you. Who are the people who have loved you into being? We were wondering today if you could talk about some of those people who have loved you into being throughout your life. Yeah, so I certainly think of um, um, my parents. Um, I think just as most people, I think the people who spend the most time taking care of them um, would, would kind of fall into that that category. I think for my parents, it's... Uh, what felt uh, to me like a unique experience was that um, because of the um, uh, the political uh, climate um, around the time I was born uh, in the late uh, in the mid uh, 1970s, my parents were part of millions of students who were exiled uh, into rural communities uh, in China to be re-educated. So. After I was born, they couldn't be with me um, until I was about five or six. So I would see them kind of during holiday days, maybe uh, twice a year. Um, and so it was a it was a somewhat unusual um, kind of parenting situation, although not at all unusual for millions of families and children uh, in China at the time. Um, but I just remember. The times that we were able to be together and then um, after I turned five or six that I was able to be with my parents not together but one at a time um, depending on where they are um, but I think they despite you know the difficulties that kind of situation must have uh, posed for parents um, I don't think I was able to fully appreciate it until I became a parent and, and I would go out of town, you know, I was, I would go out of town and work in orphanages in China for five weeks and, and as the weeks go on, it was excruciating for me as a parent. Um, I think my children were probably fine because <laughs> they had um, 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 a mom at home, but I remember how difficult it was for me as the weeks go on. Um, to be without them. So then I began to understand uh, what it might have been for my parents uh, to have had me, but then uh, only get to see me for a few weeks, twice a year um, in, in, in that kind of a time period. So um, I remember that um, when they were with me, um, I just remember two distinct experiences where, where my mother was a teacher. Uh, a math teacher. So I remember my in my earliest memories, my mother and I would be doing math problems together. That was how we spent time. Um, it didn't feel like homework because 
it was just something that my mom and I spent time on. And it was it was always we we were always competing, and <laughs> she would always win. But but um, she wasn't the kind of mother where she would pretend to let me win. <laughs> I think her motto. Um, her motto was to always challenge me. So I remember, I think some, it was like, I, I was, I had to be almost a teen when I won for the first time for real. And, um, and I, and I mean, that, that was how long it took for me to win. <laughs> was, was it <laughs> a, worth a, the wait? Math came with <laughs> it was, uh, it was worth it. I think I was more surprised than <laughs> joyful. I was just surprised that I, that I actually was faster. And, um, and um, but then I think for my father he wasn't able to be with me much. So when we were together, uh, when we had the time, he would sit me down and he would take out a comic book and he would read through the comic books. Um, and so these experiences, I remember. I mean, the experiences themselves are rather ordinary. Um, but as I became a parent, I think I uh, appreciated those moments even more knowing how difficult it must have been for them uh, as I was growing up. Isn't it true that uh, so often some of the most profound experiences are the ordinary ones, the ones that um, are, are most common to all of us, that, that bond, bind us and bind, you know, bond us together as human beings? And, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a place where we like to, to start with people. What is most common? that we have as humans what are some common moments that you've had yeah. with your kids recently i so <laughs> well uh right at the moment um my older daughter who's 16 um is trying to catch up on learning chinese um so that she can um skip a few levels and and, and study chinese at school so we're doing that now it's um, it's putting us in a bit of a teacher-student relationship that my mom and I had when I was little, um, but just just over something thing else. And uh, I remember when they were. Are you letting her win? Ahead. Are you letting her win? Is the real question. <laughs> <laughs> um, at this level, there's no competition. So, <laughs> so, so we're, um, but but I'm I'm I'm. I'm excited to see her excitement as, as she um, learns more and more of the language of the, the country of her birth. Um, it's not something I have done very well um, bringing them up in as, um, when they were younger. Um, but I wanted to, you know, loop back to this point um, that you just talked about how it's the ordinary moments, I think. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, whenever, you know, I was anticipating for my parents' arrival. And as a child, you naturally know and think that when they arrive, they will bring a present, which they invariably will. And I'm sure they spent a lot of time, right? They didn't have much money, so they spent a lot of time thinking, like, I haven't seen, you know, our son for six months. You know, what is this one present, right, that... that that we can bring. But now that I look back, um, I don't remember a single, I, I think I remember one single present throughout my entire childhood um, that still remembers, but the, the, the kind of things I do remember are have nothing to do with the presents, um, even though at the moment the presents may seem really exciting. Um, but in hindsight, it was those very ordinary moments that we have. And um, I know 
I, I, you know, Mike, um, Tom, your parents are young children, so I imagine that sometimes planning a family vacation <laughs> or Disney or something, you know, it all looms lar large financially and otherwise. We just think, oh, we want to make this the perfect experience for our children. But I, I just, I really believe um, through our work with helpers and children everywhere that in the end, uh, regardless whether children will remember it or not, it was the everyday ordinary moments that really count. Um, especially in the question, you know, if someone years from now and were to ask a question, you know, who is that person? Who is the person who nurtured you into being? I think the kind of people we'll remember are the kind of people we're, we're, with whom we've had many of these ordinary everyday moments. Hmm. Yeah, I'm remembering in our second book, which we'll definitely send you a copy of that so you can you can read up more on our, our lives. I, I wrote a story called This Moment, and it was because I had had a dream, which I don't normally ever remember my dreams. And one one uh, one one of my dreams, I, I had a, a pretty serious health issue and I was in the hospital surrounded by family members and there was a looming potential, uh, you know, um, it, major end to my life potentially soon and and so i uh i just started reflecting on that i woke up in a panic and uh you know i realized it was a dream and it just that day i spent more and more time focusing on those little moments so you know making pancakes with my kids or you know and and sometimes the messy moments too that are not always so easy or or the the things that don't make uh facebook feeds you know um but but those are the those are the priceless moments too and uh even just this past week you had mentioned about family vacations we just got back from a family vacation and every morning i tried to take one of my kids out to do something simple with me to run an errand or i took i took one of the kids to starbucks because we had a gift card and i got her one of the twins a, a cake pop and that just made her an entire day. And she's still talking about getting a cake pop, you know, uh, one of those things that rarely parents ever buy for their kids. But because we had a gift card, we were able to do it. But those simple moments, they they are they do become extraordinary moments, things that, that I think all of us hold on to. So. And it's and it's really so much about the time. It's not the thing as much as the time yeah. that we share and that we spend with them and with one another that that really is what we remember. So we have a lot of people who, who tune into our, our podcasts who are parents or teachers who work with children. What are some vital things you want adults to pay attention to about children that would enhance the way that, they, that children are influenced and, and nurtured? Could you talk a little bit about that? One of the things, um, I, not, it's not just one of the things, I think so much of uh, what I learned about children, I felt that I was guided um, by Fred uh, Rogers' work um, to a point where I almost uh, want to say that everything I ever learned about children, I learned it from Mr. Rogers. Um, or that at least he helped me to pull out uh, what is deep and simple amongst the very complex body of science and knowledge that we have about children. Um, I think one of the, I'll, I'll just point out two things, and, and these are not two separate things. Um, one is what Fred often said in many different ways, 
that it is through human relationships that we learn best and grow best. And so what that means, I think, for teaching and for parenting and for any kind of work with children is to think about um, what is it that they are looking for or need or yearning for um, when they're in relationship with another human being, whether that person is a teacher, a parent, a neighbor, a coach, or a peer. Um, I think children and youth, they enter into relationship with other people because there's something about that human relationship that meets their fundamental human needs. Um, to um, give you kind of just simple examples um, that when a child, we'll just take the example of a child who is quote unquote a troublemaker in the classroom, who's always trying to distract the class and who's always trying to have some antics that 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 draws attention and, and it's often you know frustrating to a teacher. Um, and typically we can think of that child and we can say, well that child wants um, attention. That child needs attention. Um, and my colleague uh, Dr. Dana Winters who's at the Fred uh, Rogers Center would reframe it and she says uh, that child is looking for a relationship. Um, that child is looking for a relationship and a sense of belonging in that class. Um, a lot of times the child uh, who's the troublemaker, who's always draw, trying to draw attention away from the class itself is someone who's struggling in the class and uh, who can't find a sense of connection and belonging in the content of the class and uh, and is in his or her own way telling us that um, he or she really want to be connected to the learning, to the experience, but doesn't know how and, and, and would very much appreciate the help um, from a teacher, from peers, or from the entire uh, school environment. Um, so that's one, that this idea that, that so often um, children's behavior is, is a way to communicate a developmental need and so much of so many of children's developmental needs are tied to the quality and the substance of uh, their human relationships. Um, the other part um, that Fred uh, Rogers would talk about in terms of children but I think in terms of adults as well that he would emphasize the importance of growing on the inside. And I think he differentiates growing on the inside from the outside. Um, this ties back to what we were saying earlier about what is essential is invisible to the eye and so on. Um, when we think about kind of the outside, those are the visible things. So when a child learns to count to 10, when a child learns to do algebra, when a child throws a football, all those things are the things we can see on the outside. Um, but I think Fred was particularly interested in what is growing on the inside and what is it that we can do 
particularly through our human relationships to help children grow on the inside. Um, the inside, what are some of the things that are inside? Well, uh, Fred would talk about, for example, a sense of trust, a sense of safety. Um, does the child feel safe? Does the child feel like he or she can trust the people around him, around her, whether they're children or other adults? Um, the capacity to handle, um, the capacity to face failure and still go forward, um, the capacity to manage the frustration with not getting what you want or not being able to do what you want to do. Um, all those things are far less visible, um, but our capacity to do all of that, uh, I think, falls under the category of what Fred called growing on the inside. Academically, sometimes we call it uh, social-emotional development or we call it, you know, resilience or so on. But none of these words can quite capture uh, what it means to grow on the inside. And um, I think um, Fred, oh, actually, this came from Mrs. Um, uh, Rogers. She would talk about how Fred's work is about figuring out how do we help children to become confident, competent, and caring human beings. So confident, competent, and caring. So forget the fact that this was about children. Like if we just look at these three words, right? Confident, competent, and caring, um, and look our and, and look at ourselves, and then and, and see you know in all the way, ways that we are still striving um, to be confident, competent, and caring. And so much of that striving is having have to do with the qualities uh, that we are nurturing and developing on the inside, right? A, a, a little bit of that is on the outside, but but so much of it I think is on the inside. And and these kind of growing on the inside, I think comes first and foremost uh, with the human relationships that we built uh, with people around us. Uh, we could not agree more with all of that, how, how important that is. And, you know, the people we listen to, primarily we listen to adults, uh, sometimes children, and we have a story we want to, we just want to share quickly about a child we listened to and, and what we learned. But even with adults, no matter, no matter if they're, they're in their 20s to they're in their, their 90s, those things, that they want to be, they want to be competent. You know, they, they want to be caring. They want, you know, to, you know, they want to know that they matter, that, that uh, they're, they're, they're contributing to this to this world and this life and and we see we see that all the time and no matter how old people are those are the kinds of things that um they they want to be and, and want to do and and we know that ourselves we feel that way our own selves and it's uh, a lifelong too. journey it is a lifelong journey so uh you know, thank you for sharing that uh you reminded us of a of a of a six-year-old girl who we whom we met with we were asked uh, by her grandparents to to meet with her because her parents were going through a very difficult very acrimonious divorce and they just knew that their their beloved granddaughter was was struggling on the inside 
and they could see that manifest itself on some outside behaviors. And they wanted to know, would we sit down alone with her and, and allow her to tell us what she was going through and what she was feeling. Well, at, at, at age six, it was difficult for her to ar articulate well exactly what she was feeling. But she offered, she said, you know, she didn't know necessarily how to say some things, but she said, can I draw how I'm feeling with you, for you? And we said, absolutely. And we sat at a table with her as she drew, you know, you know, stick figures of her parents and uh, remember uh, of a heart that was broken, that was separated, you know, from each half. And, uh, you know, and, and a picture of her kind of in the middle of that. And it's just how touching it was that she was able to express in that way the, the, the sadness and the pain and the, and the fear and even the loneliness that she was feeling. Uh, you know, going through this th th this divorce uh, along with her parents, and so we just um, we just we just we're going to need to close now. But we we just want to say how much we appreciate the work you are doing with children uh, because it is helping to nurture them, helping them to be competent and and to be caring, and and to know that they are loved uh, and included and and that they matter. But it's also continuing to tell those of us who are adults those same things and that it is lifelong that we hope we're learning as children and that we're teaching to children and modeling for children, but that we are also modeling and teaching uh, one another, no matter how old we are, to be those things. So, um, June Laylee, we, we just thank you mm -hmm. for being with us today. We just thank you for your, your wisdom and your insights, your caring manner, and uh, the way you want all of us who have been children and are children uh, to, know, to know how much uh, we are cared for and how much we matter. Well, Michael, Tom, it's a pleasure to uh, speak with you, and I look forward to uh, seeing you both in just a few months, and we can have more That's of these right. conversations in person. We can't wait. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the Someone to Tell To podcast. And for those of you who are listening, we are so grateful that you continue to, to tune in each and every week. And uh, we do encourage you, please tell others to, to tune in as well. We, we, uh, I know Michael and I are both very encouraged every time we have a, get, a new guest on and we learn a lot and we're hopefully growing on the inside <laughs> as June Laylee uh, talked about today. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you in a few weeks.